Hi everyone, it's Tuesday, April 17th. My name is Gendluk. Welcome to Global Beats, the radio show of the students of the Institute on Globalization and the Human Condition at McMaster University. Our topic today is viral activism. In recent years, there has been a noticeable shift to producing and disseminating online content in order to mobilize individuals, particularly youth, to make a difference by signing online petitions, tweeting, and Facebooking over more traditional methods. In March, this trend has reached a peak when Invisible Children released a viral video to raise awareness about Joseph Kony, leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, which has kidnapped children across Central Africa to use as soldiers. On Friday, the organization Cover the Night campaign takes place to further raise awareness. First, in our Around the Globe segment, we will interview Dr. Alex Savigny, Associate Professor at McMaster's Department of Communication Studies and Program Director of the McMaster's Syracuse Master of Communications Management Program. The rise of viral activism, its successes and its failures to date, and where it should go in the future. Second, in our National Briefing segment, we will interview Rebecca, a student who is involved with Invisible Children's McGill chapter on the Coney campaign and its use of viral activism. Finally, in our Looking Local segment, we will interview Melissa Martinez-Leo, a recent graduate of McMaster's MA in Global Health Program, who has led the local McMaster chapter of Invisible Children on the organization's awareness strategies. Around the globe. Uh, hello, Dr. Sevigny. Uh, this is uh, I'm Doran Hodge. Uh, welcome to Global Beat. Hello. Thank you for having me. So the first question that I have for you has to do with the Troy Davis campaign. So in the Troy Davis campaign, we saw an outcry uh, through social media technology uh, and news spread of the flaws associated with Davis's conviction. So in the end, uh, however, um, despite the sort of public outcry uh, via the internet, the movement was unsuccessful in, in overturning his execution. So what kinds of lessons do you think uh, could be derived from examples such as these uh, with regards to net activism? Well, there is a, a, a court of public opinion and a court of law, and the two are becoming more and more indistinguishable. In fact, many law firms are starting to invest in public relations uh, expertise to be able to buttress their in-court uh, proceedings. Uh, what, what we saw in that case was victory in the court of public opinion, but uh, not enough political pressure or political leverage to overturn the, the decision. That's not to say that stays of execution are, are always political in nature, but uh, when you do run a campaign, what you're trying to do is leverage, leverage influence a political influence to gain uh, a result. And I guess it just wasn't enough in that time. However, what's interesting is that this move towards uh, public relations and, and fighting uh, court cases in both the court of law and the court of public opinion is going to have really serious ramifications for how lawyers do business in the future. Because net activism and the ability of uh, special interest groups and people who are savvy in terms of gaining influence on social media in particular, and then using social media to gain influence in traditional media, are going to become more and more prominent. And they will have more and more influence 
on what actually happens in the court of law. In this case, there had already been a, a legal decision, and they were looking for a stay of execution, uh, and they didn't get it, because I think that's a lot harder uh, achievement to get to. Uh, but while a, a case is still in court, manipulating the court of public opinion uh, one way or the other could be a, a deciding factor, in, uh, an influencing factor. Do you think that maybe this somehow disrupts the, the legal processes or the natural sort of established legal processes that we, we have in place? Absolutely. We're seeing a blurring of the line between the court of law and the court of public opinion. And the court of public opinion is having a greater influence on the court of law than ever before. So in criminal cases or in civil cases, you're seeing lawyers investing in public relations counsel and advice to promote their causes over social media with the hope that that will in, in turn influence traditional media. If they can get their cause to have a lot of profile in social and traditional media, then you know, chances are there'll be more focus, more scrutiny of the case one way or the other, and that influences the result or could influence the result or could influence the amount of resources that are spent by the, by the um, plaintiff or the defense on defending the case because the case becomes more high profile. Uh, with the spread of the Coney 2012 uh, video across the globe, so what, what are some of the implications uh, and the pros and cons that come along with uh, communications technology uh, with this sort of activism? I mean, we're looking at concepts like development, internationals, um, interference by not, not only governments now, but also populations. What you saw in the Coney 2012 video was someone crafting a very clever video, a very strong video that had all the elements of a good viral campaign or a campaign that could go viral. So it had some facts, it had strong imagery, it had emotional appeal, and it had immediate relevance to people's lives. And it was easily understood. So that campaign was structured in a way that, that was very appealing to people across all age demographics. And it didn't cost people a lot to just click share on Facebook or to click forward uh, on their email, you know, to forward the link to the website uh, to other people, so it spread very quickly. This is an emerging form of activism that could be used for public diplomacy. So uh, what happened there was you had a, a sort of a guerrilla public diplomacy effort. In fact, it's really interesting to see what's going on with social media and how it's influencing public diplomacy <laughs> or cultural diplomacy. Take what happened in, in Egypt with the Facebook revolution, as, as people like to call it. The revolution didn't start with that Facebook page. In fact, things had been going on for months. Uh, what the Facebook page did was it brought attention and shared my share uh, of what was going on in Egypt and in Tunisia and other places to the West, and in particular to Western media and to Western elite. And it kept the story fresh, it gave the story legs in the West. So in fact, what the Facebook revolutions were good for, that the web page, the Facebook page, wasn't so much organizing people in Egypt or in other countries, rather it was to keep uh, what was going on in Egypt top of mind in amongst elites in the West. And, and then have that be part of informal conversations that are happening in cabinets around the West or uh, in diplomatic circles. And being part of that conversation is super important for having uh, an impact because then in terms of the public agenda, in terms of what uh, the diplomatic agenda, in terms of uh, what's going to be mentioned at, at dinners and at formal meetings, you're going to be mentioned because you're in the diplomat's mind, you're in the senior public servant's mind, you're in the politician's mind. Same thing with Coney. That campaign essentially bought a piece of real estate in a lot of people's minds. Because of that, 
stake that they had, the stake in the ground that that campaign put in people's minds, they started talking about it and it had an impact and an influence. In fact, I think the African Union started chasing Joseph Kony shortly after that campaign went viral. So it's interesting to see that, that this is a new way of being of executing a effective, informal public diplomacy. How might this be uh, related to democracy? Very good question. We're seeing a move towards openness and transparency, or at least what I would like to call the perception of openness and transparency. Because can governments operate in a truly transparent fashion? No. Uh, there are certain things they have to hold back for you know, issues of national security, issues of privacy for, for citizens who are vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. However, can they become incredibly more transparent than they were up to now? Absolutely they can and they are, because the Internet has brought with it a sort of open source, open data culture that is really promoting the notion that governments should be more transparent in their decision making than before. So democracy is changing in the sense that you know, your typical citizen can be more informed. There's no guarantee that the typical citizen is more informed because, in fact, data are showing that people are consulting the same brand name news websites or news aggregators and a very small number of them, uh, as, which means that they have a, as limited an exposure to, um, to uh, the news as they used to when it was print uh, under social media. However, what's interesting is that strong public diplomacy campaigns or cultural diplomacy campaigns like, uh, you know, I would say informal or guerrilla public diplomacy campaigns, like viral video campaigns, can slash into that, those sets of habits that people have, you know, always going to Yahoo News or always going to Google News or always going to the Huffington Post. What a good viral campaign can do is can slash into that and create, again, a piece of virtual real estate for news and ideas related to the topic of the activism. And that's what you saw with Kony. You know, I mean, all of a sudden people started searching for Kony and actively looking for stuff related to, to Joseph Kony. And so while this wasn't top of mind, it wasn't being covered, it wasn't even uh, on the agenda, what this campaign did was it put it on the democratic agenda. And then because it's on people's minds, governments had to pay attention. So the impact on democracy is huge. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's more democracy. It just creates a new venue to bring topics that are of interest to, to certain special interest groups or activists to the fore that wasn't there before. So it's a new venue. Is democracy going to improve or become more open? Yes, but the question is whether society will become more democratic or whether it's just simply access to information which will become more democratic. And I, I think that access to information will become more democratic, and you might actually see society becoming less democratic because of this. You're saying that populations have greater access to information, and, and this may uh, make uh, for a more democratic system. But also political structures that already exist are, gonna have, are, are having the same sorts of access to uh, information and the Internet. So how might you see that, being, uh, that affecting relations of politics and political power? My sense is that political power will neither be lessened or increased by social media. I think that what will happen is you'll have, uh, if you have actors who are, or agents who are savvy to using public relations techniques, their power will be amplified or is amplified by social media. Good PR firms or good government relations lobbyists or, or, or good government public and cultural diplomacy offices uh, their powers are amplified. Activists' powers are amplified if they're savvy to using 
social media to create viral campaigns or to, to, to gain mind share. But I'm not sure that the power structure is going to change because accessing those opportunities requires education, requires access to resources, uh, you know, information resources, fact resources. You have to have the resources to shoot video, to edit video. You have to have the resources to understand what's relevant to people. All of that takes resources. It's, it's not a cheap business, and it's not an easy thing to do to design a viral video. It's something that, that requires a lot of thought and requires a lot of training. So I'm not convinced that power relations will change. In fact, I fear that more power will be centered in those who already have power. Perfect. Thank you very much, Dr. Alex Sevigny, for joining us on Global Beat. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for, for uh, an interesting discussion. Hello, Rebecca. It is a pleasure to have you joining us today. Tell us a bit about yourself and your experiences with Invisible Children. Thanks for having me. I am a student in my third year at McGill University. I started working with Invisible Children in 2009 when a friend and I signed on to help out with their rescue event. That was pretty interesting. We had about 10 days to throw the whole thing together. What's what was interesting with the children that we found out with running that event was that everything can be done independently such that Invisible Children doesn't have a Canadian headquarters or anyone in Montreal, but all of your resources are found online. All the communications are done through, at that time it was done through San Diego. So we had someone supporting us from San Diego who, when we needed insurance for an overnight event, communicated with McGill, whose field we were allowed to stay on and so we were kind of the on-the-ground people, and we told them what we needed from them, and they were very supportive with that and helping us rent equipment and, you know, any costs that we had. They trusted a couple, at that time, 18-year-olds to run their event in a way that we thought suitable for our city. And I think that one of the great things with Invisible Children is that, that that's how they allow themselves to grow that way, is by trusting their, their followers all over, I guess, the world now. And so the Coney 2012 campaign really took off in this unprecedented way, drawing a lot of attention to this idea of viral activism. Can you talk about what you find really interesting or unique about sort of this approach to activism? I think what's interesting about this approach to activism is kind of what I mentioned before, in that it allows people to make it their own. You know, you can host a screening party, whether that means having a few friends over to watch something on your laptop, or you can book out a room and, and get a projector. You can book screening grants for individual children and actually have someone who lived in a community in Uganda that was affected by the LRA come talk to a group of a few hundred students, which is what we had here at, at McGill happen a few weeks ago. So I think that the way that it went viral is just makes it so very accessible, like we saw on Facebook where everyone saw it within, I mean, a few days, everyone knew what, what the video was if they hadn't seen it yet. So the organization has faced a lot of criticism um, for things such as being affiliated with evangelical Christian groups, a lack of local empowerment, and supporting military intervention and this idea of American imperialism. What are your responses to these critiques? As someone who supports Invisible Children, I can say that I certainly did my homework before getting involved with them, and I understand a lot of the criticisms that have come out. There, many of them are legitimate. I think there's a distinction in the criticisms that have come out. You know, there's some that, uh, much like when people saw the video and watched it and didn't look any more into individual children themselves, the same thing happened with the criticisms, which was that they saw a headline and kind of ran with the idea. So I think 
you know, that's a bit dangerous. But I understand that there are also serious concerns like, you know, the the actions of the Ugandan military and uh, any links to groups that aren't quite so reputable. So in terms of their actions with the Ugandan military, one of the creators of Invisible Children, or rather not the creators, but one of the, uh, the people in charge of Invisible Children, made the comment that, you know, they, they know that the Ugandan military has committed these crimes and they're doing what they can now to ensure that they're acting in an incredibly appropriate way. I think that something that's important here is being willing to criticize something like the Obama administration in terms of their support as well. You know, if, if people are really willing to look into the Obama administration's policies and go to that level of criticism, then I think that there's a conversation to be had there that I probably can't have at this point. But I think that Invisible Children has always been a single-purpose organization. They said that from the beginning they want to get Joseph Coney, not because he was the only dangerous thing out there, but because they wanted to achieve a single specific goal. And the way that they chose to do this was with working with the Ugandan military. And so as for their uh, association with evangelical Christians, from what I understand, a lot of this comes from the financial contributions that these groups are making to Invisible Children. I know that a lot of the founders when little children were or are, I suppose, uh, religious in their in their own faith and their own belief, I imagine that you know they they know people who are also religious and maybe in these groups and and giving them money. But I went through their uh, financial statements and <laughs> not that it not that this is a particular name, but Oprah in 2011 or 2010, I suppose, gave them two million dollars. You know, the Wildlife Conservation Society gave them over two hundred thousand dollars. Gas Clothing Company gave them almost $10,000. They've got Belmont Merrick Central High School District giving them another $10,000. Like the, There are many financial supporters here, not just evangelical Christian groups. Now, the big concern that I understand with the Christian groups is that Invisible Children also runs an education campaign on the ground in Uganda. And there's a very controversial bill in Uganda um, concerning homosexuality and the legality of it and the punishments for being homosexual. And so the concern being there that if Invisible Children would ever support an education that would fall in line with this bill. Um, and again, I think this comes back to the idea of the fact that the Obama administration has publicly stated, as has Congress, their support for Invisible Children and what they're doing. And I personally find it very hard to believe that an administration like that does not vet very seriously any group that they are going to have, like, throw their support behind. And so I haven't seen a syllabus for Invisible Children in the education that they run. I would be shocked if there's anything in line with, uh, with that bill, which is something that I saw one of these articles suggesting. Now, another problem with one of these articles is they mention Invisible Children's ties to a group called Apollos Clothing. And they refer to Apollos Clothing as a California for-profit boutique high-end clothing brand, which... Well, not entirely false, certainly gives a very different uh, idea of Apollos clothing, which was started by two brothers with the idea of global citizenship in that they do what they can to support local economies all over the world. So the fact that they have a Ugandan uh, cotton-growing operation is not something that they'd ever try and hide. They actually have manufacturing factories all over the world and support local economies and allow these local economies 
to decide what it is they're going to manufacture and what it is that makes sense for their own, which would bring me back to this comment about local empowerment and a lack of local empowerment. You know, Invisible Children, I know their San Diego offices are uh, mostly, you know, American interns. But in Uganda, I mean, this is an awareness advocacy group. They're, they were never meant to do any aid. That was never their, their mandate. That only came by working with people in Uganda who said, you know, it's great that you guys want to do this, but what about when these kids get out? We need schools. We need to be able to pay for these schools. We need teachers. And we need a rehabilitation program. And 95, I, I'm, I, I believe it was 95. I know it was above 90% of their staff on the ground in Uganda is Ugandan. The programs there have been crafted and designed by the local people when, they've, when they asked what they could do and what they could put their money towards. This was the advice that they took. These, aren't, these Americans didn't go in saying, we're going to fix this for you. These people asked for help, and they said, well, what can we do? One of the things that they've done, with lo- I mean, in terms of local empowerment, is they've set up what they call a crisis tracker. And it's a series of radio towers throughout areas affected by the LRA. And so, I mean, its biggest thing is that it allows communities to communicate when an LRA attack has actually just happened so that a local community can then evacuate the area. But also... It works with people who they get injured but aren't close to a hospital. And so they can communicate with communities down the line to find out how they can get, you know, this man who has hurt himself, who's broken his leg, to the closest hospital. And so to say that there's, there hasn't been local empowerment, I would ask people to actually look at Invisible Children's website because it's it's right there in terms of what they've done. This part two that they recently released actually responds to a lot of these criticisms and a lot of the things you just mentioned. But the video only has 1.5 million viewers on YouTube as right. opposed to part one, which has 90 million viewers. So right. how would you respond to this notion that Coney 2012 was a sort of viral fad and it's lost its momentum and contributed to more of a slacktivist culture than actual tangible activism. I do think that uh, you've certainly got a lot of people interested in something that they weren't looking into before. And that maybe they kind of, uh, I guess, planted a seed in that when the time comes when people aren't, you know, in the middle of midterms and finals, that they'll find a cause and remember how viral this video went and that it got everyone's attention. You know, maybe that's one of the, one of the good things about social networking now is that you can put your name to a cause and actually get your message out there. Like, you know, these people, for whatever, for half an hour, at least looked into this issue. I think it opened up some doors in that way. And so this Cover the Night campaign is coming up on April 20th uh, with basically this global call for individuals to cover their city with Coney 2012 paraphernalia. And so I'm wondering what you would say are sort of the pros and cons to this and um, what sort of assumptions you have for how it's going to proceed. In Montreal right now, there are a lot of demonstrations and protests involving clashes with students and the police. And so one of my first concerns was having a bunch of young activists running around overnight posting up posters and how, how the public and the police would take to that. Now, Invisible Children has since addressed those concerns in that they suggested something a bit more feasible, one of them being <laughs> reverse graffiti. So you, you see a wall that's been, that's been graffitied, and uh, this is in their, in their Part 2 video. You know, you kind of wash the design out of it or into it, I suppose. And, uh, you know, speaking to local businesses about posting out posters. Invisible Children isn't going to support any illegal activity. They've called, if, if anyone's on their email list, they've called for people to be, you know, more creative than that, to come up with things on their own that are acceptable, to talk to local businesses and to work, to work together because the last thing they want, right, I mean, it's just bad publicity for them to have a bunch of their supporters running around 
doing illegal things and making everyone really angry. As for attendance, I know the Montreal group, between McGill and the Montreal group, currently has 17,000 people saying they're attending. And I don't think those kind of numbers are going to show up. But I guess we'll have to see what happens the night of. I think there is still a very interested group that's going to come out. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. And I'd like to thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. Local. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Global Beat. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, how you got involved with Invisible Children? I am a master student at McMaster University. I just actually finished my program. I got involved with Invisible Children about three years ago when there were lobbying efforts and I started to see some of the things that were going on across the border. Um, and I found out about the film, having had it passed on from a friend and decided to get involved. So then I decided to get in contact with some of the people that were leading the lobbying efforts and uh, to see what I could do. So the first and second video both emphasize the build-up to the Cover the Night campaign that's scheduled to take place on Friday, April 20th. In light of the awareness that the first video already brought to the cause, what more can the postering event do? So covering the night, the first segment is we call on people to say you have to do something locally to earn the right to be heard globally. So what this means is we want you to take at least three hours of your day, anytime either during the day of cover the night or before the week of, take time and invest and look into your community as to some of the ongoing issues, whether it is, you know, going to the food bank or picking up trash to invest time in your community on behalf of, you know, the Comey 2012 campaign. And then, during April 20th, at night, to participate in this postering event. And what these two events coincide to achieve is to kind of show the community and the rest of the world, hey, we are people that we not only care about our brothers and sisters across the border, but we also care about the issues at home. Well, late last year, uh, a social media-driven push to halt the execution of Trey Davis was unsuccessful, and there were second thoughts about the increasing trend of activism through the Internet. Does the Coney campaign illustrate a way for viral activism to be effective, or is it still prone to many of the same pitfalls? I think when you look at global activism, it always has its strengths and its weaknesses. But what is the fact that Invisible Children face so much criticism is a reflection of that. But I think what makes this video so unique was that it was able to captivate the attention of so many people within the span of its release. I mean, the, the fact that you it hit 100 million views is a reflection of that. But it, it's really about maintaining that momentum. Okay, now that you watch the film, what are you going to do about it? Some people say that it's a success, some people say that it's a failure, but I think that you will see, especially among a lot of the editorial, among the people that are more informed that this is an existing issue, it can be interpreted as a success. It's more of how you interpret it as a success. It's, it's more of an opinion. Are more people aware that this problem exists? Absolutely. There are, we're receiving people from all around the world, youth from different governments that are now saying, I'm getting flooded with, you know, letters 
parents that are sending in messages saying, you know, my kids are telling me that they want to participate and they want to get the action kit. So I think that it can be deemed as a success in the fact that the goal of this campaign, one of the primary goals, was to get awareness out there, was to inform the general public that may not have known who Coney was, may not have known who LRA was, to become informed about it, to realize or learn about this crisis that was happening. So in that sense, it is a positive, but is it drawn to some of the pitfalls? Absolutely, because there was so much criticism that when um, more of it was explained as to why this criti- these criticisms took place or, or the miscommunication or misinterpretations from the video, some people were so turned off upon reading this false information that they no longer bothered to read the explanations. Thank you, Melissa, for being on Global Beat. Thank you. Segments were hosted by Doran Hodge, Leila Mashkur, and Raj Paleja. Editing and post-production by Mola Shah Savari. And special thanks to Dr. Alex Sabini, Rebecca Aaron, and Melissa Martinez-Leo, and all of our colleagues on the Institute of Globalization and the Human Condition. I am Gent Luke. Thanks for listening. Please remember to like us on Facebook at Global Beat CFMU and follow us on Twitter at Global Beat underscore CFMU. See you next Tuesday morning on Global Beat.